This is Robert Powell. I'm an executive board member of the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, and this is Dead Hand Radio. Welcome to Dead Hand Radio. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Andrew. It's good to be here with you. Appreciate you taking the time to do this. I do have a lot of interesting questions to run uh, to run by you. And um, the first thing I'd like to talk about is your interest in UFO and the UFO topic and what got you started uh, studying the UFO phenomena. <clears throat> well, I guess the, uh, my interest began probably when I was a teenager. I had read the book uh, by Alan, Dr. Alan Hynek, The UFO Experience, and uh, it's written in a scientific manner, and so I was kind of a science geek, <clears throat> so I enjoyed it. I found it interesting, thought it was worthy of studying, but, you know, you've got had to go to high school, college, get married, get a job. So I kind of left that behind um, until uh, I retired early from, I was in the semiconductor field. So I retired early and I said, okay, now I can do whatever I want to do. Uh, you know, what are some of my passions? And one of them was, you know, I'd like to go back and look at that whole UFO subject. So that's kind of what got me started. So. I really started investigating the subject back in early 2007. That's when I first really got involved. When did you get involved with the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies? Um, <clears throat> myself and two other individuals created uh, the SCU in uh, September of 2017. So that was about a little bit over three years ago. And so today um, we have over 105 members. Uh, over half of them have advanced degrees. Uh, the vast majority have kind of science backgrounds. And of course, you know, with 105 people, they have varying views of the subject of UAPs or, or UFOs. Uh, well, that's a that's a good place to um, talk a little bit more about the the organization and what is the focus and the mission. Well, the organization's focused on the scientific uh, review of the subject. So the <clears throat> the mission is to look at the subject uh, you, using scientific principles and. Mostly we look for cases when there's some type of data that we can use beyond just one or two, you know, witness, uh, witnesses that show up. Uh, now, you know, sometimes witnesses can be, uh, have excellent testimony, which you can utilize. Like we did that in the uh, Nimitz case, which happened in 2004. Uh, but most of the times it's difficult to really develop uh, a report based on purely witness testimony. 
Yeah, I get that. Um, so you started it, you started the company out, well, the organization, you started it out with two other individuals and it has since grown pretty, uh, pretty fast. It seems like, I mean, from, from three members to 105 members within a three year period, uh, do you think that that's because of the coverage from the mainstream media or is there something else going on that's um, starting to bring more awareness into the academic uh, community? Well, I think there's two, there are two main reasons. I think it definitely helped in 2017, late 2017, when the New York Times released the Nimitz case. Uh, so that brought a lot of national attention. The other thing that was valuable is that our organization really looks at the scientific aspect. And there's really no other UFO organizations that do that. So people with science backgrounds are not really going to be too enthralled with MUFON, uh, those type of organizations. They really want something that has a true science background. And we, the way we keep it that way is our membership are basically people that have that type of background. Um, So like we have our own private Facebook site and there's discussions that go on on that site, but we don't, there's no discussions about little gray aliens or uh, things like that. It's all about more of the nuts and bolts of, you know, of a physical phenomenon, not uh, the more, I guess you might say, uh, like abductions, for example. We don't really, not to say that abductions are real or are not real, but we don't, it's not something we can really analyze. There's no, unless someone came and said, hey, I've got, you know, I, I've got some, a skin peeling of an alien right? Something you could analyze. Unless there's something like that, we don't really go down that route. Okay. So more focus on data and physical evidence and less in the realm of speculation. Right. Yeah. Understood. Uh, It's a really interesting organization. And I first heard about you guys on Twitter. And then uh, I interviewed Linda Zimmerman, who's a new member. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, her her investigations are really interesting, and she came from it at it from a different, uh, a little bit of a different perspective. She's got a science background, <clears throat> but she's been studying uh, the the whole subject of paranormal activity, UFOs, abductions, and for. I think going on close to 30 years now, 25 or 30 years, I think she's been looking into it. Yeah. And, and Linda kind of specializes in uh, animal reactions yes. to, to UFO incidents. And uh, yeah, and she does have a science background. Uh, she She's going to be working uh, with another individual in our group that is uh, a doctor of acoustic engineering. And they're looking at, okay, are there ways that, uh, we can acoustically evaluate the phenomenon. Very uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I could see that connection with the, the animal connection with the acoustics. Right. 
because they're more sensitive to to sounds and smells yeah, than we frequencies. are. Yeah. As well as, you know, that sometimes there's incidents where people say everything goes dead quiet. Well, right. that, that's that's still an acoustical phenomenon because you can measure that there is whether there is or is no sound. You can't measure that. Right. Right. Uh, so have you ever had an, an, an eyewitness account or an experience mm -hmm. of any kind? No, not really. No? Uh, nothing, you know, unusual. Um, I always say uh, aliens don't like me. So I, I, I never. <laughs> well, I, never I'm a, I'm, I must be in the same, uh, the same boat as you are, because I've never seen even a light in the sky that I haven't been able to easily identify you know, as a yeah, satellite or. I have had a light in the sky that I couldn't identify, but, you know, uh, I think of, when I think of you, if I think of something a little more substantial than that. that a physical you know, craft that you, you can. Yeah. Where you can you see can the make out, Yeah. You can gotcha. see characteristics of it. Um, there's a lot of talk about, and this is, I am relatively new to the whole subject of ufos um and i'm in no way i would no way consider myself a researcher an investigator or any of that i'm just a, a curious person and um i've i've noticed that it seems like recently there's a lot of talk about orbs um that are that are manifesting in front of people and doing strange things do you guys look into anything like that the orb no, phenomena. Yeah, I mean, if there was some data to it, right, where you, uh, it was captured on video film, those type of things. Um, I haven't seen a strong orb case yet. Um, I mean, I have seen videos where you see a light moving around, but you know, you need a little more than that in order to, you know, really evaluate it. Um, uh, I know uh, sometimes it could be like infrared light that that shows up you mean something visible under the infrared uh spectrum yeah just something a, a warm area that, oh, that okay. moves, um you know assuming you have an infrared camera that you're right pictures with gotcha um so for this interview i looked at the website quite a bit the scu website that's exploring scu.org is that right that's it right okay um i pulled up a couple of the uh, papers that you co-authored and i read through as much as i could um a pretty easy reading for a guy that doesn't read a lot you know i i i have trouble reading and staying focused uh, even with books even with fiction but reading those uh, publications that you wrote or co-wrote, man, I, I was able to breeze through those pretty good. So thank you for, that. yeah, thank you for making those um, easily consumable for the general public. They're not really written with um, a lot of scientific uh, jargon. Jargon, yeah, good point. Um, yeah, I, but, I, hate, um, I hate papers. They're full of scientific jargon, so that you can't even follow the paper. Um, yeah, I was I was pleasantly surprised when I, I started reading it, and I was able to understand everything that you were putting out there. Um, 
And, and it seems like you guys spend a, an incredible amount of time on these, uh, on these studies. Uh, one of them, I think it took you like a year and a half or something um, before you published. And yeah, the, the Aguadilla case was a year and a half. Uh, the Stephenville case was six months. And I think the uh, Nimitz case, actually the Nimitz case was close to two years wow. because we started on it before it was on the New York times, uh, release. Okay. Uh, the, the two that I looked at, I, because I've, I've known about the Nimitz case. Um, I've saw, seen a bunch of videos about it. So I didn't really look at what you guys concluded on that, but I did look at the Aguadilla case and the Stephenville lights case. Um, I found them both very, very fascinating. And I can understand why you chose those to, to go into and study. There's a lot of data. Um, at the Aguadilla case in particular, because of the video capture, the video footage in that is just astounding. I can't believe that that case doesn't have more widespread. Um, and, and again, <clears throat> I'm relatively new to this, so it's possible that I just hadn't heard of it before but it seems to me like it does not get enough coverage. Yeah, it's it's kind of surprising because, let's see, we released that case in 2015 or 16. And, and actually within the last year, it's gotten a lot of coverage because for whatever reason, the national media, when they picked up on the Nimitz case, also you know, saw the video of the Agudia case. So then they've been, you know, publishing it. Uh, now on the, um, on the papers that you, within the group that you guys have written, including the ones that you've co-written, but uh, of those papers, have you guys started to identify any patterns or similarities in the different phenomena? Not really. Yeah. Uh, you know, the the Nimitz case, the Stephenville case, the Aguadilla case, they're all three very different uh, types. Right. And actually, if you study the phenomenon itself, it, it's very difficult to find a pattern because the shapes are different. They vary. Um, you, I mean, you can find patterns if you look at incidents that occur within, let's say, a few weeks within a given geographical area, you can say, okay, yeah, this, these guys are all seeing the same thing. But when you spread it out across years um, or wider geographical areas, it's difficult to find those patterns. Yeah. Yeah, I was just hoping that you guys would have maybe come up with something that nobody else has thought about yet and said, wow, you yeah. know what, but there was- there there was a TV show that I was watching that found a correlation with some incidents and seismic activity. Have you heard of anything like that? I, I haven't seen that particular show, uh, but whenever you have seismic activities, um, you can get uh, lights in the sky as a result of the seismic activity. Oh, okay. Um, I, I personally, I don't consider that part of the UFO phenomenon. You know, uh, that's more of a, 
a known Earth-based phenomenon. I see. Okay. Uh, that was just something that came to my my mind as we were talking. Um, so, how difficult is it? for you to solicit peer reviews on the papers that you guys publish. I've noticed that uh, there's not a lot of organizations out there that are, that have peer reviewed the papers that you guys are putting out, even though they are available. Um, what, what's the, uh, why is it so difficult for you guys to get peer reviews? Well, you know, actually, we, we've established a peer review group within SCU now, and it's managed by a, a professor up in uh, Vancouver, Canada, uh, that uh, manages our overall peer review process, and our paper on the Nimitz was peer reviewed. So it was oh, okay. peer reviewed by four doctors uh, that peer reviewed it. Now, it's still difficult to get it peer reviewed because it's a lot of work yeah. to you know, peer review a paper. Um, another paper that was peer reviewed, uh, this is, this one went into a science journal uh, called, um, K, I think it's, it's a chaos theory, or I, I don't remember the exact science journal at the moment. Um, but we had it peer reviewed before it went uh, into that science journal. Yeah, and uh, I, I didn't mean to say that none of your papers are peer reviewed because you guys can peer review within your own, within your own organization. What I meant was the, the papers that I looked at, it looked like there was only one. Um, and I think it was this, I might be mistaken, but it's, it, I think it was the Stephenville lights paper was peer reviewed by a group in France. Or, or was it the Aguadilla? Oh, okay, yeah, uh, uh, that was the um, Aguadilla case. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. So there was a, uh, a French group that uh, looked it over and peer reviewed it, but uh, they did not want to publicly come out and say, okay, yeah, we officially bless it off, but they okay. just did that on, at a private level. Got it. Um, and again, is it seems like it's because there's still such a strong stigma about anything to do with uh, UFOs. Is that true? Right. Oh yeah. There's a, there's a large stigma. It's, it's like the taboo subject, yeah. which, which is kind of strange, right? Because science is about studying unknowns. So there's no reason there should be. I, the reason there is, is, is if you look at the media, right, they, like whenever I, if I talk to someone in, in the media, they're not really interested in hearing about, you know, the raw facts or the data on something. They want something more dramatized that they can feed to the public. So they want to know, do you have a picture of a little gray alien right now? So, so of course that, that attracts people who will find some smudgy photograph and say, oh yeah, here's a little gray alien that I found. And that's, you know, that, that's the problem. And that's why it's such a, uh, a taboo subject. Most scientists don't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I will leave my opinion out of this conversation because <laughs> it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's not worth getting into. I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I welcome your opinion on any of these topics though. 
So feel free to expound on anything that, um, you know, if I don't ask a pointed enough question, feel free to, to ad lib. Sure. Uh, so on that, um, on that same topic, how difficult is it to attract more widespread interest in the topic? I, I mean, what can be done? I, I know it's slowly coming around more and more individuals are coming around, but it, what we need is widespread adoption throughout the organizations, the uh, academic community, the, the scientific community. What do you think can be done to accelerate that? Right. Well, you know, that's what the SCU is trying to do by getting papers in academic journals and getting scientists involved in, in writing those papers and doing the research. But I think if there was one thing that could be done that would really, really accelerate it, it probably ties into the, um, the government organization that Congress has requested give a report in 180 days on the uh, on these UAP incidents. If that um, committee recommended that the government bring in the scientific community to investigate it, and they were to spend you know, let's, and this is not a large amount of money, but still, if they were to commit a few hundred million dollars to the study of that, then the scientific community will get on board because now you're talking about giving monetary grants to scientists, giving monetary grants to universities. And once you do that, then it begins to legitimize it. And that's... <clears throat> Sorry, I'm a little froggy this morning. I, I got it. I am too, a little bit. <laughs> but you know, it's it's kind of sad a little bit to say that science follows the money, but it does. Yeah. And uh, like everything else in life. Well, I, I'm glad you brought up the um, the task force and the bill that just passed to fund the task force, because um, that was my next question, actually. And it is, um, in your opinion, I, I know you don't have any inside information on this, but what, what do you think it's going to do for organizations like the SCU when um, that report, that 180-day report comes out? Do you think it will give you new cases to analyze? Um, are you hoping for government recommendations for scientific analysis of that report? What, what do you think is going to come about after that report comes out? Yeah, I, I don't think there will be any new uh, information that they give the public in terms of cases. I And so what I think that that report will come out with is will be fairly, you know, non-eventful. Uh, that's my opinion. Uh, now, what I hope happens, though, is that be behind the scenes, that there's a recognition that this subject needs to be seriously investigated and that they will put aside and recommend money be placed on investigating uh, the subject. So that's what I, I hope actually happens. Uh, I, I don't have a lot of hope that, you know, there's gonna be this open kimono and they say, okay, here's, here's what we know. I don't think that will happen. Yeah, we can only wish, right? Right. Right. But, you know, the 
the more the American public will put pressure on their congressman, the more action will come out of that committee. So, Have you been listening to my podcast? Because I say that every episode. <laughs> oh, no, no, I haven't. I haven't yeah. heard it. But that's yeah. true. I, I do. I, you know, I don't have a huge listener base, but to the people that do listen, I always encourage them to write your congressmen or Congress members um, and become vocal about the serious study of these phenomena because they're, it's important. Yeah. Yeah. That's the most effective thing that the American public could do. Yeah. Is to write their congressmen. We're, we're in strong agreement on that point. Uh, so I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about your new book. You had mentioned when we first uh, exchanged emails that you had written a new, a new book or a fairly new book um, for children based on the UFO topic. Yeah, I, I published the book uh, in the middle of November of 2020. So it's only a couple of months old. Uh, the name of the book is The Truth About UFOs. And so there's a little story about why I wrote it and how it got that name. I was uh, babysitting my grandkids about a year ago. And the eight-year-old was interested in UFOs because he knows his granddad investigates UFOs, right? So he had checked this book out in the library. And so before he read it, I said, can I take a look at that? So I, I looked at it and it was just filled with all these scary stories, gray alien. There's no way an eight-year-old kid should be reading about something that's gonna come and get him at night and there's nothing mommy and daddy can do about it, right? So I, I said, Gavin, don't read this book. I said, this is not true. I said, take it back to the library. And I said, I said I'll write you a book that's true about UFOs. And so that's why where the name came from, the truth about UFOs. So I really wrote it for my grandkids. And um, it's, um, it's about 100 pages. And it, it kind of tells it for someone in the 8 to 12-year-old age group. Uh, so I don't, I don't go into a lot of detail on the cases, but I try to make the kids think. So it's like, here's the story. What do you think about this? Does this seem reasonable? Does that seem reasonable? I talk about what is a UFO. You know, I explain to them, everything you see in the sky is UFO until your brain realizes what it actually is. So when you see a little speck in the sky, it's unknown until it gets closer and you go, oh, that's an airplane. So I explain those kind of things, you know, to the kids and a little bit about uh, science in terms of, you know, what's a light year, how far away are the are other star systems, how long does it take, you know, to get from point A to point B. And, uh, you know, the amazing thing is that uh, a lot of the parents who bought the book for their kids told me they read it and they liked it. <laughs> so I've gotten more positive feedback from the adults about liking the book. Well, in today's society, man, with the, the limited attention span that people have, even adults, um, because of, you know, the amount of time they spend on, a, on a, the internet or on their mobile phone. Um, they just don't have a lot of time to, to consume these great big novels. Yeah. So something that's a three or four page analysis of a UFO case, it's really easy to consume 
it's it's easy to make your own conclusions on that. So yeah, that seems like it would be a a, a really uh, well received um, book for anybody of any age. Uh, it's cool that you wrote it for your your grandson grandson, right? Yeah, well, actually, I have two of them, but uh, it was this the the younger one who had you know checked out that UFO book that yeah. I did not want him to read. That's uh, that's great that you're you know you're educating the next generation, and uh, yeah, I think that's so important because uh, if there was one thing that they should teach in school that they don't is critical thinking, which is what I try to teach them a little bit in that book. Uh, is, you know, how, how do you make a decision? You know, what, how do you decide which facts are real and which facts are, are not true facts? Uh, and it's really, um, I just feel like it's a real weakness in our society. So I'd like to see the next generation, you know, really learn more about critical thinking. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and well, that's my next question. Why is it important to engage future generations on the topic and to to inspire interest in these in these topics? UFOs, paranormal activity. Yeah, I mean, I in the ideal world, the next generation, you would have kids that as they grow up, they're not interested in hearing about the little gray aliens. They want to know, okay, what what are the facts? What do we know? What are the possibilities? What do we need to do to figure this out? Um, that, you know, that's what I would like to see happen. Yeah, and not only that, with the critical thinking, um, you would hope that people would move into the realm of not only what are these things, but how do they work and what can we learn from them? You know, yeah. it's just... Um, Everybody is still, well, I, I'm not everybody. There's, there's still a large uh, percentage of the population that doesn't even believe the phenomena exists. It's not a real occurrence. You know, they, they still think that it can be explained away for, by some mundane explanation. Right. And, and that's often because they haven't really read about the subject. They haven't studied it any. I mean, it's the same thing that happens. You'll hear an astronomer come on TV and say, oh, no, none of this is real because of such and such, right? But he hasn't, he's looking at it really from the periphery. And it's a very shallow analysis. He hasn't truly studied it. And if you haven't studied a subject, you can't really comment on it. So these guys really should not comment unless they've truly studied the subject. Yeah, because they could really do harm to the the curiosity of other people about diving into that topic. Right, right. And, and not only that, with the American public, for whatever reason, they buy into someone's title as to whether something's real or not without actually thinking through it and saying, does that make any sense? Um, That's a whole different topic. <laughs> yeah. We won't get into the... The mindset of the American public, <laughs> that's a different, that's a different animal right there. Uh, so with, with that in mind, what we've discussed so far, do you have an opinion on what the future of ufology looks like? Uh, 
Man, or, that is a tough question, Andrew. Uh, okay, a, a better question may be, what would you like it to look like? Well, what I would like it to look like, right, is that we actually uh, commit the resources to investigate the phenomenon and, and that we, we stop worrying so much about, I mean, you have to worry about national security issues, right? But that we don't hide everything behind the cloak of national security. And, and here's a, a very good example, the Nimitz case. Right. We've got a senior chief who ran the radar on the Princeton. So he, he saw the radar data, right? You've got the, all the Princeton data center that had the radar because they detected the objects. So the question becomes, where is that radar data? I don't think they threw it away. I mean, if the Navy kept the video of this object, you wouldn't keep that video and throw the radar data away. Well, in this, in a more ideal world, that radar data would be made available to the scientific community for analysis so that it becomes very clear as to what the speed of the object was, what was its acceleration capabilities, and potentially you, you could get even more information via radar data than just speed and acceleration. But as it stands, all of that is, you know, hidden behind the national security cloak. And so no one gets to know, but clearly the military has to know, you know, unless they're like, did you ever see Sergeant Schultz on oh, yeah. Hogan's Heroes? I know you nothing. Know, like uh, Sergeant Schultz, I see nothing, I hear nothing, I yeah. know nothing. <laughs> and I hope we're not like that. But I wonder sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I wonder too. Uh, do you think? Well, let me let me rephrase that question because. Um, well, what about what about photos and and more videos being released? Do you think those pose any threat to national security? Um, the only thing, in my opinion with national security is you have to you have to keep, I guess, your potential enemies from knowing what your capabilities with radar happen to be. So you can't let them know, for example, in the case of radar, that my, my radar system um, can detect a signal every 10 milliseconds, for example. Okay, so that that's that's fine. But that my radar system can calculate the speed of the object, there, there's, there's no critical information that's given away there. I'm just telling you, here was the speed of the object that my radar system calculated. So that's where I kind of segregate between the national security issues. You know, you don't want to tell them exactly how your radar operates, but there's no risk in telling them the results of what your radar system. You know, yeah. Uh, and what I was alluding to is that there was a recent article written by Tim McMillan in the debrief. You familiar with that? Yes. Publication? With, the, with that publication. Yeah. Yeah. And there's apparently a clear photo of a triangle craft coming out of the water that is 
being talked about and being passed around the intelligence community. And it's like the secret that everybody knows, but nobody in the public realm has seen this photo and everybody's chomping at the bit to get this photo. Why are they holding that back? Why wouldn't they just release that photo? Exactly. That has nothing to do with national security. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, <laughs> what's the national security issue there? But it, it's like everything nowadays has become a national security issue. I mean, it's, 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 to me, it's all control issues. And so, so in your ideal world, that is a little better managed and, and you know, not everything is easily thrown under the umbrella of national security. Right. So we get more access to better data, better evidence. I agree with that. I totally agree with that. Uh, what do you think is going to take to bring that to pass? You know, it goes back to what you say you bring up on your show all the time. The only thing that happens is if the American public puts pressure on Congress and then Congress will put pressure on the defense industry. Um, otherwise, it, it will always stay, uh, you know, like that. Agreed. Feels like we're making some movement in that direction. We're going in the right direction right now. Uh, it's just such a precarious position that it, the whole topic is in right now. It could easily be derailed. Well, and, and that that problem goes throughout our society. It's not just UFOs, right? Um, if you think of it this way, it's like you have this giant bureaucracy that grows and grows and grows. And information is power. And so you don't you you don't want to give out your information if you don't have to, if you don't need to, right? Because for one thing, it can cause you grief because the media asks you questions, they want to know this, why did you do that? Why did you do this? So the easiest way to remove that problem is just don't give out the information. And so now you have your people who are working within this bureaucracy. And for them, if you think about it, you have this decision, okay, here's this request for information. Do I give it out or, or, or do I not? Well, if I don't give it out, there's no downside to that. If I give it out and I'm right in my decision, I'm okay. But if I'm wrong in my decision, they're going to have my rear end for that. So it becomes that CYA, right? It's like, it's better, I'm better off not giving the information than providing it. And so as a result, your bureaucracy basically pulls the information into itself and, it, and it's hard to get anything out, no matter what the subject. So it's up to the people to just put more pressure on the Congress members and the leadership of the country to bring yeah. that information to the public. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. That's funny how we went from talking about your book <clears throat> to such an important uh, not that your book is not important, but we, we, were, we started out talking about a children's book that led into, you know, how, how can we revolutionize the flow of data and information from the government to the public? Yeah. And, you know, I think educating the next generation is going to open up that possibility even more. So I yeah. think they are definitely related. 
they're definitely connected. There was a question that I skipped over um, and it's in regards to the, uh, the cases that you guys study at SCU. Um, actually, there's a couple questions. One of them is, what do you guys, what criteria do you guys, I, th I think you already partly answered this, but I'd like to, to get a little bit more information about it. Um, the criteria that you guys use to decide which cases you're going to study. Right. So when you, when a case first comes to you, you have to do an initial analysis of it, right? Because you don't really know. And I mean, some of them you can get rid of real quick because it's nothing. It's just John Doe tells me he saw something, right? But then you have the ones, okay, John Doe saw something and he says he's got a video. Well, so you look at the video and it's just lights in the sky. Well, there's nothing you can do with that. And then you get another one and it's a video, but this time there's trees in the background and there, there's a plane in the sky along with this object. So now you have something you can reference against in the video to do something with. Um, so, you know, that justifies a little more work. And then can you, are there a, a large number of witnesses who basically collaborate on the video? Uh, excuse me, corroborate what's in the video? Because really, a video by itself is really not worth too much more than just a witness by himself, just like a photograph by itself. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you uh, what you need to know. You need all of that together to you know, really analyze the case. That's why the Nimitz case was so good because there were several dozen military witnesses. There was a, a video image and you had some top notch uh, naval pilots who actually engage the object in their aircraft. So you've got a lot of, you know, good data and evidence there. So that's kind of uh, how we decide is it's, it's a gradual process, right? You start looking at it. Yeah, it's, you know, it's not worth going any farther and you stop or, or you continue with it. Do you have any publications or reports that you're currently work cases do you have any cases that you're currently working on that are just about ready to publish or is that something you won't discuss until it's ready to publish um well i i definitely won't discuss them uh the details of case until it's ready to publish right uh, but right now we actually don't have any uh cases that we're analyzing uh, because we just don't have any that have sufficient amount of data to, uh, you know, to properly analyze it. Um, and what we're doing, what we're working on right now are various projects related to historical data and looking at things such as, uh, you know, USOs, which are submersible uh, UFOs, uh, if there's any patterns to that and looking for patterns and characteristics of uh, UAPs, uh, those type things. But um, we don't have a, a good case right now, you know, that we could sink our teeth in and go analyze. 
When you mention historical cases, are you guys uh, considering looking into some of the old Blue Book, uh, Project Blue Book cases? Yeah, but we're doing it more on a uh, a large scale, more like a statistical analysis, such as uh, are there any consistent characteristics of, of the UFO that you see across time or or certain shapes have particular characteristics, those type of things. Um, so we're kind of looking at that, but but we're not really going back and analyzing a specific case. So much time has gone by and the witnesses aren't around anymore. It's very difficult to do that. That's true. Uh, do you guys pull case files from MUFON or other sources? Um, only if, if it's a case that's has enough data, we can really analyze it. And then how do you, um, how do you get the cases that you guys are looking at? Are they submitted to you? Well, like for example, the Stephenville case at that time, I, I was actually a member of MUFON. So I became aware of the case. I went and interviewed people and then I, uh, myself and another individual uh, Glenn Schultz, we went and actually got the radar data. But once we had the radar data, then it was really a good case. Uh, until we got the radar data, you know, it wasn't such a strong case. Uh, and, and in the case of the um, Aguadilla, we got, in that case, we got the video first. And I mean, with that one, once you look at the video, then you know it's worth analyzing. <laughs> Yeah. Well, as what really blew my mind was because at, at first it did look like a fast moving balloon. You know, right. it could have been a, just a tumbling balloon, but then it goes in and out of the water and it doesn't change speed. Right. That's what really blew my mind about it. And then yeah. reading your analysis of it, uh, you guys identified that. And then the the weird thing was that it split in two and became right. two identical objects yeah. like that maybe could have been a, a weird glitch in the, in the camera, but that, that uh, camera equipment is so high tech that I don't think that would be possible. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, we looked at all of that and, and there's no explanation for that glitch. And then plus I look at it frame by frame and the, the amazing thing is you actually see the uh, number of pixel make that make up the object double in size right before it splits. So it goes from, if I remember right, there were around 35 pixels that made up the object shape. And within less than a second, that expanded to 70 pixels. And, and the really surprising part was that there were two heat zones. You, you have one heat zone and then that heat zone grew and then it split apart. And that's why in the paper I said, it reminds you of mitosis yeah. and cell division. And, and then the next thing you know, you've got two of them. And, and then one of those two goes you know, back into the, into the water. And then the other one stays above the water. And then it goes back into the water. And then it's gone. And then you have to see it again. Uh, I have no, who knows? I have no idea what that, what that is. Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating case, and like I said, I don't understand why it doesn't get much more widely um, discussed coverage. 
of it. You know, I know the Nimitz is kind of taking the 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 front the front row in everybody's mind, but a case like that, I mean, it's so interesting. Yeah, I, I do hope that more people look into. What kind of uh, collaboration do you guys have going on with Skyhub? Oh yeah, uh, well, a number of the Skyhub guys are also members of SCU, and so right now uh, we're trying to work with Skyhub in terms of um, the system they're they're putting together, and you know, are there any uh, inputs we can give them that will help uh, in the creation of their system and in the evaluation of the data that they collect. So we, we actually have already had our first meeting with them. And then um, we'll have a second meeting sometime probably within the next month uh, to discuss, you know, things that can, that can be done with the systems they've got. In my mind, there's an obvious uh, correlation between the two organizations. They're, they're a data collection organization where they're, they're making it easier for the layman, the public to go out there and collect the data, bring it into their database, have the AI correlate the data, catalog it, and put it into nice, neat compartments. And then your, your, your organization, your team comes along, looks at that data and says, oh, there's a case we want to look at. And, and then you have everything right there ready for you to analyze. Right. Yeah. It, it's a, uh, a difficult job they have because on the one hand, you want to have the right type of equipment to analyze what you're going to do. And then on the other hand, you want it inexpensive enough that a large, you know, a significant number of the public can purchase the system and utilize it. I think what, what, you know, part of what they're trying to do is to get as many units out there as possible. And, and I think it's very cool that they're doing that uh, because obviously the more data you have, uh, the, the, the better the data set can become. Yeah. Um, but until they get uh, large organizations that can put a lot of money into that equipment. Um, it seems like they're they're going to get a lot of data, but it could some of that data could be less than um, just less than ideal. Right. Uh, I mean, that doesn't it, mean it's useless, though. That's right. You know. Yeah, and, and in a, in the perfect world, you want like their sky camera. You want it specified, and this is the one that's used. And then they've got another camera, which, you know, if the software uh, identifies an object, your uh, more narrow field of view camera comes in. So maybe it's like a 300 millimeter lens or what have you. And, and that is a specific, you know, size camera, you know, with a specific field of view, a specific uh, lens size and everything. So that w when you get your data, you can you know, analyze it no matter where it came from. Uh, otherwise you have to, to properly analyze the data, you, you have to re reset, right? Because, you know, this guy over here used a 300 millimeter lens at f-stop of f-1.8 
1.8. This guy used a 100 millimeter lens and f stop 3.4. And it, you know, then you have to try to match it all up. It becomes an enormous task. Well, it'll be interesting when the data starts to come in. There, they've already collected uh, some videos, and yeah. See, ideally, you would always want two stations so that you could triangulate any object uh, that one camera picks up the other one. So if you, if you always have two stations that are say uh, 300 feet apart, then you, you will, any object that one camera picks up, as long as the other one picks it up, then you're able to calculate its uh, distance, its speed. Why is it important to study UAPs with everything else going on in the world right now? Well, it's a tough uh, question, I know, but yeah, you know, and this is why I look at everything. It's a what I call a cost gains analysis. You look at what, how much you have it costs you to do something versus what is the output potentially that you get. So, in the case of UAPs, um, if you look at the the possibility that this is an unknown intelligence from wherever, the the output of that statement being true is a, a huge impact to all of humanity. And in order to determine if that's true, the cost to do so is really minimal compared to what you would get on the output side. So that's kind of how I look at everything is, you know, what, what what's the cost to look at something versus what's the potential you know output to it the implications are pretty enormous and there's there's a lot of people that already believe it to be true there's very little evidence to support that you know very little hard evidence to support that there's there's talk about these meta materials that were somehow created off world and are now available, you know, here on earth for study. Do you have any idea if any of that is available to the public? I, I have not seen any hard evidence of that that convinces me that uh, someone has a metamaterial that was not created here. Uh, I'd need to see the isotope ratios and it would need to be done multiple times it, like different university labs. Um, I tried to do that with a sample called the Ubatuba sample, which came from uh, supposedly an object that exploded in the air in 1957 in Brazil. And it's very difficult to do. Uh, I mean, my background's chemistry, so I'm familiar with what you have to do to come up with isotope ratios. And it's not a, it's not like you just inject it and you get an answer. Uh, it, it takes a lot of work. And in the case of the Ubatuba sample, um, the only thing that we could conclude was that uh, the sample had an extreme purity of magnesium, which is unusual for anything during that time frame or anything that would have come, you know, uh, fallen to Earth, whether a meteorite or what have you. Uh, but in terms of the isotope ratios, uh, 
the testing we did indicated that it appeared to be terrestrial magnesium isotope ratios. Now there are, there were some uh, uh, minute amounts of strontium and bromium that were in the sample, which is unusual, but we were not able to really properly analyze it to truly know what the isotope ratios were on those elements. Um, so that, that's an example of one that I've been personally involved in. Uh, but so far I have not seen enough evidence to convince me anyone has a, uh, a sample that was you know, built somewhere else. If they did have samples, how long would it take them to analyze it and, and draw those conclusions and publish that information? Probably two to three years to properly do it, right? Because basically what you're gonna have to do is you're gonna have to take some of the sample, give it to, university, to a university, and you have to get a university who agrees to do it, right? Because a lot of times the university doesn't want to even analyze it because of the stigma of the topic. So you, you need about three universities doing the same sample and they all come up with basically similar results. And if, if you had that, then you could establish that. I mean, what you would establish is that the, the sample was not, uh, its source was not on, on the earth. You wouldn't know where, what its source was, but you just would know it wasn't from, from here. Interesting. The, um, with your background in, in the scientific community, you're still considered a member of that community, even though you're retired. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. Have you experienced any backlash firsthand uh, from your contemporaries because of your interest in this topic? Uh, no, not, not, not too much, especially once you're retired. Uh, yeah. You know, someone may chuckle or say, no, they don't believe that or, or what have you, but I, I don't really, have not really received any, any backlash. Now, where you do get backlash, what's difficult is trying to publish a paper in an academic journal. Um, there, there's a definite resistance to, uh, so you have to word the paper just right, right? So that uh, it, it's acceptable accepted into an academic journal. Are any of the papers that you guys have published um, being submitted for for, uh, for that? We submitted one paper which was accepted. Um, oh yeah, now the name of the journal was Entropy, E-N-T-R-O-P-Y. Oh, that's, uh, you did mention that earlier, I forgot. Yeah. Now that, that one came out of our Nimitz paper. Like the Nimitz paper is too large to be submitted as an academic into an academic journal but you can you can submit a piece of it which is kind of what we did we looked at specifically acceleration and we we threw in two other cases from the past and basically did acceleration calculations uh, based on that so yeah that's let's see how did we get on this subject i guess because we were talking about uh Intel, unknown intelligence, I guess. Uh, well, I kind of jumped from uh, I jumped from the um, the metamaterials into the backlash that you might have oh, received, yeah. right? And um, because you know, like you said, the 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 scientific 
community, the universities are going to be resistant to even studying those materials because right. of the stigma attached to the topic. And like the, the Ubatuba sample that I had, right? So I was able to get it analyzed at a lab here in Austin, which is a commercial lab because I used to be the lab manager there. So I know the guys. And so they say, sure, yeah, we'll analyze it for you, right? And they thought it was interesting. Um, but then I wanted to get some university analysis of it, right? And so several universities, which I contacted to try to get them to also analyze it. Once they knew the history of the sample, then they, they didn't want to, to be involved in analyzing, which is, which is really kind of sad if you think about it, because it's just a question of, you know, what is the isotope ratio of this sample? You know, it, it shouldn't, you shouldn't be worried about uh, anything else other than doing the scientific analysis. Exactly, yeah, it shouldn't matter where the piece comes from or what the history is behind it, just analyze the, the material. Yeah. Uh, so, you might have already answered this, but what do you what do you say to those people? Like, put yourself. Let's say you are the um, I don't know who's the, who's the head of the university scientific community. Well, there's not really any specific head, right? You know, I mean, you just have heads of various universities. And oh, okay. Science subjects. So if if you had if you had a position where you could basically lay down the rule to these, to these universities, what would you tell them and convince them to, to don't worry about the funding. Don't worry about the stigmatism, just do the work. Yeah. I'd just say, I, I want you to be open-minded uh, on this. And I just want a thorough analysis of this material. And I want to know, every element that's in it. I want to know the isotope ratio of those elements. And I want to see a full report where you indicate exactly how you prepared the sample, how you analyze the sample and your conclusions it, as to uh, the isotope ratios compared to normal terrestrial uh, ranges that are, you know, that we're aware of. I normally don't talk about religion as a matter of fact, I never do. But it seems to me in this scenario, there's almost a religious fervor on the part of the scientific community to steer away from this topic. Yeah, I guess you might call it a religious fervor. It's almost like it's it's a, a taboo subject. Yeah. Um, I mean, it would be like going into a university and telling them you'd like them to set up uh, and do an analysis of ghosts that have been showing up in a particular house. And, I mean, there's just no way you, that you would ever get that, you know, accomplished. Yeah. We, we just have to move past that. I mean, in you know, like, like we talked about earlier, I think it's important for the younger generation to, to start to get educated and open-minded to these topics. And then eventually, eventually, hopefully it will, um, it'll start to, <clears throat> a new way of thinking will start to take hold. Yeah. Uh, 
Now, we still got a little bit of time. So um, I'd like to talk about some of the other areas of interest that you have outside of um, the SCU. Uh, because in your bio, I, I've read that uh, you're a member of a couple of different organizations besides the, the SCU. And I had not even ever heard of these organizations. So um, the Society for Scientific Exploration was one that was pretty interesting to me. Uh, I had not heard of that. What was it that drew you to that organization? It, it's it's basically a science-based organization that's that's open-minded, and they look at topics on the edge of science that are not, you know, necessarily in the mainstream. Um, so, for, so the subject of UAPs or UFOs is a subject, you know, that they take into account. They also look at other interesting subjects such as uh, near-death experiences, uh, anything that's, you know, slightly on the taboo side, uh, they look at paranormal, um, you know, they'll, they'll look at that, uh, remote viewing, anything that um, is not well accepted within the, you know, scientific community. Um, but but these, these people, I'm just, uh, I'm not sure because I just, uh, I just found out about it by reading your bio, but uh, uh, their, their tagline is open access, peer reviewed research on consciousness, physics, energy, healing, and more. And as you said, one of the things they study is besides UAP um, and paranormal, they also look into remote viewing, which is a, an area that's extremely interesting for me. Um, yeah. Remote viewing is really interesting. And uh, uh, I talked to Hal Putoff about it because he did a lot of the uh, original work on it for, I believe it was either the CIA or the NSA that he was working for at the time. And he kind of summed it up for me as to, you know, what they finally determined and, and why the program was killed. Um, in, a, in effect, what they were able to determine was that sometimes there are people capable of telling you about something like the, the, the police use it sometimes, you know, when they run into all these dead ends, okay, and someone will feel, you know, a, a, a photograph or an object from this person and say, okay, he's buried such and such location. Well, they, they did the experiments to determine that there was no way that this person could have known what they knew. So they established that it's, it, it is a real capability that some people have. However, it's not a re repeatable, which of course is always a big problem in science, right? If you can't repeat it, then in a way our science says, if you can't repeat it, then it's, it's not real. Well, it is important it's repeatable because you can't depend on it. It's not repeatable. So for example, if you were trying to determine, uh, is Russia gonna launch a surprise attack on this, right? And, and this person is capable of actually knowing that, but he may only know it properly one out of five times, but you can't, 
you know, you can't do anything with that. Um, the only thing you can do something with it is really like what the police departments do, right? You don't have anything to lose. If they say they're there, well, we'll go dig it up and see if there's a dead body there. And I don't know if you've watched some of those shows, but the person that had the psychic ability before has been arrested because police figured, no, <laughs> there's no way they could have known that. They have to be the, the guy who did it. Right. Yeah. I, I have heard of people uh, getting in trouble because of that. Um, yeah. They, you know, but they're able to whatever prove their innocence or, or you know, otherwise right. eliminate right. themselves as a suspect because they're yeah. they're they're obviously not involved. But uh, yeah, people who do that kind of stuff do have to be careful about volunteering that information. Yeah. That's that was really interesting about the Society of Scientific or Society for Scientific Exploration. Um, that you are a member of that. Do you do? Are you involved in what they're doing over there in any way? Not not too much. Just a supportive member. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and what about the UFO Data Project or the National Space Society? Are, are, is your involvement? strictly a supportive role or do you actually get involved with what they're doing? Yeah, the UFO data project I'm involved in. Um, and that that has kind of morphed into Skyhub, right? Because that's what UFO data was doing. So now a couple of the guys that were also part of UFO data are working with the Skyhub guys to try to help them on making that be a success. So that one I stay involved in. And the other, the national, uh, was it? What was the other one? National, National Space Society. Yeah, the National Space Society. Actually, that one, I don't know if it's going to happen, but um, I volunteered it to help uh, with some students where they, they want to debate a particular subject. And because I have debate experience from college, I told them I'd you know, take a group of kids. Uh, of course, it's all through Zoom because of all this COVID stuff. But yeah. You know, normally I talk about history a lot on my podcast. Uh, you know, with you, I just I wanted to get through these important questions that I had about the UAP conversation, and we just don't seem to have enough time to to go into the history stuff. Maybe we could do another podcast at a at a later date. Yeah, that that's the other book I wrote: the UFO UFOs and Government a Historical Inquiry. I wrote that with some other guys. Uh, that that's basically a history book. Very cool. I'll I'll, I'll look at that. Is that available on Amazon? Yeah. yeah and and your other book is available on Amazon too, right? Right. Yeah. All those are. Um, but uh, if anybody would is interested in getting in contact with you, what's the easiest way for them to reach out? Well, they they can uh, you know reach out to me through SCU, which is at that. Uh, website explorescu.org and it's .org because we are a, a nonprofit organization with 501c3 um, and the other way they can send me an email directly uh, my email address is basically my full name robert max powell at gmail.com so they can reach me e either method will work all right. Well, uh, so thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Robert. I really appreciate you taking the time and answering all my questions. I hope we could do it again sometime. Well, have a great week and a better 2021 than we have for 2020. Absolutely. You too.
All Good right. To see you. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.